Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another week, another episode of Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld, and we have a powerhouse episode for you today. We're going to have Congressman Ted Lieu of California, and we're going to have Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. And, and Carrie, if I had a list of like my top 10 favorite elected Democrats, these two guys would be on it. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have them on. I'm less thrilled about some of the topics we're going to have to discuss, such as sort of the violence against the Asian community that has been rampant over this last ten uh, last year because of COVID, right? And Donald Trump and the China virus right. and all that racist crap he's done. But also, let's not pretend that this is a brand new phenomenon, right? I mean, America has a history of uh, of this stuff. So, Carrie, we can we can sort of banter a little bit, but I actually think we should get our guests on as soon as we can. What do you think? Yeah, let's hey, let's hit it. All right. So our first guest is Congressman Ted Lieu. He represents California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's currently on his third term. He sits on a House Judiciary and Foreign Affairs Committees. He's also a former active duty U.S. Air Force officer and currently serves as a colonel in the reserves. And Congressman Lou, I don't know how I didn't know that. So I'm actually really, really excited to, to hear that. My son just enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserve. I'm a U.S. Army veteran myself, so uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Congressman uh, Lou has established himself as a leader on the environment, cybersecurity, civil liberties, government ethics, and veterans. Congressman Lou, such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Marcos, for having me on and appreciate your service uh, as well. So uh, if you don't know this already, Congressman Lou is probably one of the, like maybe the top three Democrats on Twitter. Like he is an absolutely fantastic Twitter person. And I was actually kind of hoping that we could actually just kind of really have some fun on, on some of the stuff he does on Twitter. Unfortunately, we've had this sort of heavy tragedy that just happened last week, uh, afflict, you know, affecting the Asian community. So Congressman, I'd like to really talk to you a little bit about that. And you, we know that an Atlanta area gunman gunned down eight women last week, six, six of them Asian, really put a spotlight on anti-Asian bias and hate. Uh, here in Oakland, San Francisco, our own backyard, there's, there's actually an epidemic of particularly elderly Asians being attacked on the streets. Uh, the advocacy group Stop AAPI Hate has documented nearly 4,000 attacks against Asians since March 2020. Now, in response, Joe Biden said, quote, the recent attacks against the community are un-American. They must stop. I actually had a problem with this idea that racism and anti-bias you know, against ethnic minorities is un-American given the long history of this country. What are, what's your feeling? When you hear Joe Biden say this is un-American, how do you receive that? So first of all, let me say I'm pleased that the President of the United States issued an executive order to combat uh, anti-Asian violence and to provide more resources to fight back against hate crimes. Uh, but Marcos, you're right. There has been a long history of violence against uh, the Asian American community, particularly when America feels threatened. 
So we had the whole yellow peril hysteria, followed by the Chinese Exclusion Act. And then there was an internment of over 120,000 Americans who happened to be of Japanese descent during World War II. And then when Americans feared the rise of Japan in the 1980s, hate crimes increased again, and Vincent Chin was murdered uh, in the Detroit area. And now we have this pandemic uh, causing additional hate crimes. Uh, So this has not been a one-off issue for the Asian American community. It's something that has happened in the past. And that's why many of us are very concerned about it and trying to fight back. One of the things that um, really sort of always strikes me about the Asian community and its efforts to fight bias is, is this sort of trope of the model, model minority, right? The, the, the good minority. And I know conservatives really like to hammer this home mm-hmm. as a way to sort of say like black Americans, Latinos, they would be better off if they were not, if they were more like Asians, right? They, they assimilate and they have two parent households mm-hmm. and they're studious and they don't rock the vote and maybe they don't have crazy music. <laughs> I don't know, but there's this notion as model minority, but here's a moment where you see it like that bias exists. It's real and nobody escapes that hatred or bigotry. So when you hear this idea of model minority, like how does that make you feel? So whenever I talk about it and when uh, many Asian American elected officials talk about it, we always say model minority myth because it is a myth. When you look at the Asian American community, uh, it is a diverse community with a lot of different ethnicities. And then depending on what particular ethnicity it is, you'll have varying kinds of data. And it's such a diverse community, you can't really sort of apply that label. Uh, In addition, for sort of the first, um, or actually for most of our history, honestly, there weren't that many uh, Asian Americans uh, in the United States relative to their entire U.S. population. That has drastically changed in just the last two decades. So since 2000, the number of Asian American eligible voters more than doubled. Now you have more immigrants from the Asia region to the United States and any other region in the world. So this growth is continuing. And the Pew Research Institution in 2015 projected that Asian Americans will be the largest minority group in the United States by 2065. In just a few years, they have now moved that projection up to say that by 2055, Asian Americans will be the largest minority group in the United States. That is surpassing the Latino community? Yes. Wow. Actually, I hadn't seen that. So we, we were seeing. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of unbelievable. No, I mean, there's sort of mind boggling numbers. I mean, just to, you know, put a fine point on it. Not that, it, not that that's a good, I just want to add a great insight. But anyway, I'm, I'm amazed by those numbers. Well, so Terry, uh, in California, for example, Asian Americans are now the second largest minority group. It's Latinos followed by Asian Americans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Carrie. Well, I just wondered, you know, this debate that that has been that we've been having now since this horrific tragedy last week, and you know, just the Republicans trying to say things like referring to the pandemic as "quote unquote" the China virus and whatever is somehow unrelated to this uptick in hate crimes and, you know, any number of things that Donald Trump and Republicans have echoed, you know, targeting China, targeting people of Asian descent. I I just I can't even imagine what it's like to listen to that. But I would love to hear what your perspective is on those just ludicrous talking points. 
We had a hearing last week on the rise in violence against Asian Americans. And the experts on the panel cited research that showed that there was a link between the rhetoric used by a former president and the rise in hate crimes and hate incidents against Asian Americans. One reason this happens is because it blurs the distinction between the actions of a foreign government and Americans who happen to be of Asian descent. It was an inability of our government in World War II to distinguish between the actions of the Japanese government and Americans who happen to be of Japanese descent that caused the Japanese internment. And when you continue to use racist phrases like Kung flu, uh, it just adds to the blurring of that distinction. And so I just asked my Republican colleagues, just stop using ethnic identifiers to describe the coronavirus. It has an official name. Use it. Why do you think they cling to that so deeply? Why is it so important for Republicans to assign the sort of racist uh, connotation to the virus? That's a really good question, because just factually, uh, we do know the virus originated in China. But in the United States, the reason that we had this surge very early on is because the former president did nothing to shut down travel from Europe. And uh, it was a lot of the European travel onto the East Coast, actually across all of America, uh, that actually started the big increase uh, in uh, COVID infections across the United States. Uh, so just factually, it's actually not exactly the way it happened in the United States. I don't really know why they want to keep using ethnic identifiers uh, to describe this virus. And it just adds to the blurring of this distinction between foreign governments and Americans who happen to be of Asian descent. Let, let me just may, let me posit something. I, I don't think there's an idea of anything positive to run run on among a single one of them. And all I see coming up in 2022 is this stoking of, you know, of cultural issues, of cultural flash, flashpoints for their base. And I, I think this could, you know, 2022 could prove to be a really ugly, you know, it's, uh, it gets uglier every year, but like could be a really ugly uh, campaign where all Republicans are running on isn't anything about what government can do to help you. But a bunch of cultural flashpoints around, you know, revolving around xenophobia, revolving around cancel culture, revolving around, unfortunately, to, um, you know, transgender youth, uh, things like that. I mean, I just think that they're getting ready to prosecute this because it's the only way that they know how to fire up their base because they can't imagine what they can actually offer their base. That's a great point, uh, Carrie. In fact, at this hearing, at the Judiciary Subcommittee on Asian-American violence, the ranking Republican member, Chip Rory's opening statement, he focused on communist China. And so he was essentially, again, intentionally blurring the distinction because um, I have nothing to do with the Communist Party of China, right? And so <laughs> why is he talking even about that? And he was saying, you know, uh, the Communist Party of China are the bad guys. Well, okay, fine. But that has nothing to do with what this hearing is about, which is about Americans that are uh, getting assaulted. You have to serve on a committee with Chip Roy. <laughs> that, that alone makes you a hero in my book. <laughs> oh, man. So, um, Kerry, you wanted to, let's talk policy. 
Well, sure. Yeah. It, so as long, as long as we're accusing uh, Dem- or Re- Republicans of not having any policies, yeah. let's talk policy on the Democratic side. So, you know, we know you're on the Judiciary Committee. You know, recently you've been working on the topic of, or not you recently, but recently the topic of bail reform has uh, taken center stage. The ACLU estimates that about 700,000 people daily are locked up in jails in this country without being charged with an actual crime. And as we talked to uh, someone who is running for uh, prosecutor, the Manhattan DA um, in an upcoming election, she was talking about how, hey, you know, you get put in jail, you don't have cash bail to get out. You suddenly don't show up to your job because you can't show up to your job. You lose your job. You maybe fall behind on payments. You maybe get into heavier debt. You maybe lose custody of your children or, you know, I mean, there's just any number of things, a domino effect of things that happen. And so we wanted to ask you about bail reform and and why you're so passionate about it and what you think uh, its path might be through Congress. Uh, thank you very much for that question. Uh, you're absolutely right. On any given day, there are hundreds of thousands of people sitting in jail not because they've been convicted of anything, but because they don't have the money uh, to leave. And that has a number of perverse effects. Uh, First of all, it has a disproportionate effect uh, on the poor. And studies also show it has a disproportionate effect on people of color. Uh, Second, it is completely not rational. Uh, There is really no indication between the cash on hand you have and how dangerous you are. Uh, You could be a very wealthy psychopath and you can pay the bail or you can be a poor person who maybe stole a loaf of bread and you can't pay their fee to get out of jail, but you're totally not dangerous. So uh, there is really no link between the cash at hand you have and how dangerous you might be. And then third, it's sort of the study show causes people who are in this situation to plead guilty at much higher rates because the kind of person who can't pay this fee is exactly the kind of person who's going to lose their low-paying job. They don't know how to deal with child care. They're not going to be able to deal with this kind of setback in their life. And so they're just going to plead guilty to get out of a jail as soon as they can. And for these reasons, we absolutely need to have bail reform and not have people's freedom depending on how much cash they can access. So what's the answer then? What, what would the reform look like? So Washington, D.C. and the red state of Kentucky uh, has actually moved away from cash money bail. Uh, they basically, uh, uh, on a uh, risk analysis, and uh, the judge takes a look and decides, look, if you're dangerous and you're super wealthy, you're still staying in jail. Uh, but if you're not dangerous, we're going to release you and then expect you to come back for the court hearing. And the number of people that come back for the court hearings in D.C. and Kentucky are about the same as the people who come back in court hearings in jurisdictions where they have bail, cash bail. There's no benefit to cash bail is what you're saying. There's just there's just negative correct. consequences. Yeah, that is correct. So the legislation you're looking at, would, would, would it outlaw cash bail nationwide? Is that the, is that the policy prescription here? Uh, So there's different pieces of legislation. One I've worked on is it provides additional grants uh, to various jurisdictions to implement a non-cash bail system and to transition to a non-cash bail system. Uh, Another piece of legislation I've worked on is to actually cut off grants to jurisdictions if they don't transition within a certain number of years. 
Uh, so there's both a care and stick approach. Okay. Uh, we're going to see which one the U.S. Senate uh, prefers. Uh, so uh, the House is working on passing legislation this term. The trick is the Senate. Always the Senate right now, huh? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We actually we actually have Jeff Merkley on Senator Jeff Merkley on later today after you after your segment to talk about filibuster reform, because there's so many good things that are happening in the House and some, you know, and it's it's it breaks my heart to see it all sort of die in the Senate. And and particularly now that we have a majority in the Senate, that shouldn't be the case. So hopefully we can see some movement. So on that point, um, the House has passed two gun safety bills to the U.S. Senate one requiring universal background checks, the other closing what's known as Charles and Lupo. Uh, and again, my um, heart goes out to the victims of the mass shooting in Boulder, uh, which came on the heels of the mass shooting in Atlanta. And we need to have a gun reform because we can't continue to have mass shootings in America and do nothing about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of, um, of good legislation in the, in the house, um, I mean, we actually did just see, surprisingly, amazingly, a $1.9 trillion rescue plan pass both chambers. And um, there's so much there's so much good in there. So much so many positive things. Is there uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about what you think about that legislation and, and if there's any pieces of it that are particularly exciting for you. So the goal of the legislation uh, is to help. America get on the road to recovery, and it does that by getting shots uh, into arms, cash into people's pockets, kids into school, and people back into jobs. It funds three areas. So the first is to suppress the virus, do billions of dollars for vaccine rollout and distribution, as well as uh, to improve contact tracing programs. It also uh, funds a second part, uh, which is direct economic relief, uh, such as stimulus checks, unemployment benefits, small business loans, and so on. And the third is it helps local cities and states and counties, as well as school districts, deal with uh, the effects of this pandemic. Uh, its effects are going to be important, not just now, but for month after month after month. And it's something we have to keep talking about because it's really going to help the American people and businesses. I'm particularly excited about uh, the expansion of the child tax credits. What we yes. did is we uh, basically expanded it to now uh, $3,000 per child. And if the child is less than six, then it will be $3,600. Uh, that is a significant amount of funds going back to American families uh, with small children. Yeah, you're looking at the 2022 election and historically the challenges that an incumbent party faces on that first term of a new president. And and so delivering to people is so critical. And I have to imagine that people receiving a monthly check, parents, mothers, single mothers, families receiving that monthly check is sort of a reminder that who you vote for matters, given that not a single Republican voted for that legislation. So I'm, I'm actually glad that you pointed to that when you're talking to your colleagues and uh, and, you know, looking at, at what the electorate's doing or not doing, maybe in your district. Do you think that resonates? Is that something that you think will be a nice hook for Democrats to run on in 2022? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so there's a, a saying in politics as to um, how you win, which is you do good things for the people and then you tell them about it. And so <laughs> we've done this amazing bill and now a law, the American Rescue Plan, and 
we're going to tell them about it and about all the uh, benefits they're getting as well as how the economy is going to improve because of this law. And you're going to see many more schools start to reopen again because now they have the funds to have smaller class sizes, better ventilation systems, uh, having the PPE they also need. And folks don't understand that a lot of things simply cost money to execute. And now we're going to give these local jurisdictions the money they need to uh, get back on their feet again and recover from this pandemic. Can I ask one final question? Yeah, we have time for one more. So, yep. Carrie, it's yours. This is really this is really quick. When you guys, I mean, it looks like the dynamics of this upcoming 2022 midterm are, are is really unprecedented based on what's happening in American politics. Um, you know, the reconfiguration of the Republican Party, Trump sort of hanging out there, but who knows? Um, when you guys look at it as a caucus, as a Democratic caucus in the House, is there any other election that you're comparing it to when you think about about the dynamics? Is there any other, you know, midterm cycle or something that you guys think is kind of a similar type type look? Well, I think 2018 is instructive. Uh, what we know in that election is Democrats ran on health care, on jobs, and also on um, basically campaign finance reform and getting rid of corruption. Republicans ran on these big, scary caravans uh, that they said were invading America. Democrats flipped the House. You see a similar script now, right? We're running on all the benefits that Democrats are fighting for and delivered, uh, including uh, a large uh, expansion of health care and the American Rescue Plan. And by the way, anyone who is unemployed and wants to stay on their health insurance can now have 100% of their COBRA paid for yeah, on the American awesome. Rescue Plan. And so we're going to continue to run on all these amazing things we deliver to the American people. And then, Kerry, to your point earlier, Republicans are running on Dr. Seuss books that, in fact, weren't banned, like Green Eggs and Ham. Uh, they're running on actions uh, of foreign countries. And it's sort of this stuff that really doesn't affect Americans' kitchen table issues. And I think we're going to do quite well in 2022. And if you look at... Again, what happens when Donald Trump isn't on the ballot, you don't get that kind of turnout on the Republican side. When that happens, Democrats did quite well in 2018, and we expect to do well in 2022. Congressman Ted Lute, thank you so much for joining us. A real, real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Carrie, um, I, I mean, I, I, I love Ted Lieu. Uh, I'm excited that we had him on. I, I wish we didn't have to. I wish we could have focused more on the cool stuff the House is doing. Right. Yeah. But because Republicans won't do anything about gun violence, we have this sort of heavy tragedy that we have to to focus on and talk about. And a reason that we can't really get much done in the Senate um, on guns and a lot of other things is the filibuster. So I'm actually happy to have uh, Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon joining us to talk about the filibuster. I have a bio, Senator. Uh, he's starting his third term as Senator, representing the state of Oregon, as I just mentioned. He has emphasized fighting for working families. That means pushing for good paying jobs, strong public schools, and affordable college and health care. He's now leading the national conversation on restoring our democracy. And we're definitely going to be talking about that. Just last week, he uh, introduced, he's a chief sponsor of the For the People Act, otherwise known as H.R. 1. Uh, and since 2009, he's been the Senate's leading proponent of reforming or eliminating the filibuster. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. 
<laughs> really good to be with you, Marcos and Carrie. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, listen, let's jump right in on the filibuster. I mean, we can't wait. You've been working on the issue for a long time. And now there seems to be, you know, some momentum and clear hurdles, too. But, you know, and the conversation is already evolving. You know, initially it was eliminate the filibuster. Then we had President Biden come on board with the, you know, not the first person, but backing the idea of some sort of reform so that the talking filibuster, it would be sort of a reversion to what he was used to when he first entered the Senate many years back. So tell us, do you think there's a chance and is a talking filibuster reform as good as, you know, eliminating the filibuster in, in your opinion? Well, Carrie, if I can give you just a, a little bit of a background here, because people are like, well, we don't see people talking on the floor of the Senate. Well, what? We, we don't. Is it really still a, still a filibuster? And uh, essentially, it started as the courtesy of listening to every senator speak before you took a vote. And that Senate, that courtesy was occasionally abused, but rarely. And when it was seriously abused, it was really only in the context of stopping political power for black Americans. For 80 years, it was Jim Crow got the political power of black Americans, prevent them from being able uh, to vote. And so it has rather a dark uh, history and it was a way of dressing up bigotry in the first amendment. So now fast forward to modern times, uh, just a couple decades ago, the, the Senate made a change. And so you no longer had to stand and, and speak in the full light of day to obstruct the Senate from, from getting to a simple majority. Now you could simply not be present because the majority has to get 60 votes to close debate. And so it doesn't matter if the obstructors are here to vote no or simply not here at all. So now we have this silent, invisible, non-public obstruction used day in and day out by Mitch McConnell to stop the agenda for Democrats. But meanwhile, he's already struck down the filibuster on his priority. So it's not filibuster, no filibuster. It's like, it's this unlevel playing field. There's simple majority for Republican priorities for the powerful, privileged, and wealthy. And there is Republican obstruction through a minority veto on policies for the people. That is simply wrong. So that's why we're, that's why we're tackling it. And uh, the answer to your question is I have always thought it should be eliminated completely, but at a minimum that those who are obstructing have to do in daylight, they have to be out there presenting their case on the floor, and they have to spend a lot of time and energy to do it. So it would be a dramatic improvement. The talking filibuster would be a dramatic improvement. And every single Senate, Democratic senator here, except for Dianne Feinstein, who was absent, voted for the talking filibuster when I presented it as a rule change 10 years ago. Oh, that's a twist. I didn't know that. That's well, not, and, not well known. That's right. Not well known. Well, and Senator Feinstein recently, I'm pretty sure she, she released a, a statement uh, last week saying that she was open to filibuster reform if Republicans were going to use it to just block every bill. That's right. Uh, she absolutely did. And you've seen public speeches by people who generally haven't talked about it. Bob Casey, Tina Smith, Amy Klobuchar, who's now heading rules and has become a real champion on this. Dick Durbin gave a powerful speech on the floor. And of course, as you noted, President Biden weighed in. Uh, they, we have seen this movie of Mitch McConnell destroying bills for the people before. We saw it under Obama. So now we know what his strategy is. We tried to, to have him kind of essentially... Uh, take his foot off the brakes and be a responsible participant in solving problems in America. And he refused. His theory of power is that if you obstruct 
the Democrats, when a blue president is in the Oval Office, you strengthen the case both for a Republican Senate and a Republican president. And for him, it's power politics. It's not about problem solving, improving a lot of Americans. I am absolutely convinced that if Republicans had a legislative agenda during the Trump years that went beyond tax cuts for the for billionaires, that the that the legislative filibuster might have been gone, too. The only reason it wasn't is because they literally had nothing to do other than pass judges and that they got rid of conveniently. Right? I mean, was there anything that <laughs> could have been filibustered in that time? I mean, did you, did you even remember a filibuster in the last couple of years? Well, we, we have voted against closing debate on some Republican bills, like a criminal rights bill that was, right. was just a fake criminal rights bill. But you're absolutely right. The Republican priority has been tax cuts for the rich, so they changed the rules on reconciliation. Reconciliation was a special, simple majority pathway for decreasing the deficit. But back before Bush became president, they decided we need to be able to do tax cuts for the rich. That will require increasing the deficit. So they changed reconciliation to allow them to do tax cuts for the rich by simple majority. And then they changed the rules to allow themselves to put federal society members, basically corporatists who, who favor the corporate rights over individual rights, consumer rights, environmental rights, labor rights on the Supreme Court. So when, when uh, Mitch McConnell stands up and pontificates about he's the big defender of Senate tradition, it is absolutely false. Well, I, it, it, what's interesting is, is I thought that the, um, that President Biden's framing was really good in that it took away this idea of, you know, I mean, we all we Democrats, I think, largely look at Mitch McConnell and think, OK, he's full of a lot of BS. But the framing from President Biden was really nice because it was like this is a reversion. If we did a talking filibuster, this would be a reversion to the norm. And, you know, and, and I think it's hard. He has he has longer history than than Mitch McConnell does. So, he, you know, I think it's hard for Mitch McConnell to look at President Biden and say he doesn't know what he's talking about. Of course he does. That's right. I think he came in 73. And the reform that allowed the uh, change that evolved into the no-show, no-effort uh, filibuster was based on a rule passed in 74. But, but people didn't do that intentionally. So they continued to show up for years until they gradually said, well, why am I bothering? The, the majority has to get the votes. I, don't, I no longer need to be here. I no longer have, to have the courage of my convictions to make my case before the American people. So when Biden said, let's return it to the way it worked when I first came to the Senate, uh, there was an awful lot of truth in that. We we all know that that one of the biggest impediments to filibuster reform is obviously West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. And I'm not interested in beating him up. Um, we need him. <laughs> so how do we get him to because he's been waffly. He, he opened the door a little bit to the talking filibuster and then he shut it down again. But there seems to be maybe some movement, some possibility of movement there. Is there any any chance we can get Manchin on filibuster reform? So I, I think every single member, and I'm not going to speak about uh, Joe in particular, but uh, I will include him in this, and I include it in deliberately because I know it to be the case. He cares a lot about the function of this place. And he has been in politics long enough to see how the Senate has deteriorated as a place to get things done. And he does campaign on the fight for ordinary people. And you think about the foundations for ordinary people, it's healthcare, it's housing, it's education, it's good paying jobs. And he comes from a state where good paying jobs are really needed. In fact, housing and healthcare and education are really needed. So he cares about those investments. 
Uh, I don't think there's a single Democratic senator that thinks Mitch McConnell should have an absolute veto. So we're going to have to have all 50 Democrats in the room and say, uh, given the uh, the obstruction, uh, how are we going to get there? And I am convinced we will work out the path, whether it's whether it's carving out, if you will, uh, the Voting Rights uh, Act, that is uh, For the People Act, as we call it S-1 in the Senate rather than HR-1, whether it's all things that have a constitutional framing, uh, very like the Equality Act could be included, uh, John Lewis Act, uh, Preclearance Act, uh, Voting Rights Act to be included, uh, whether, whether it's striking a deal with the Republicans that if you filibuster those particular bills that are constitutional, then we will do. Then we will will act to get rid of the vote. There's many pathways possible here, and as a group of 50, we have to figure it out, and we must figure it out. We have a constitutional responsibility. We took an oath to defend the Constitution, and the foundation, or the heart, kind of the pulsating heart of a republic, is the ability of citizens to be able to access the ballot, and we have to defend it. And I think Joe will be a full partner in, in figuring that out. So what I'm hearing you say uh, is that it might not be one particular issue. It might come down to the fact that the Democratic caucus gets together and says, we can't give Mitch McConnell veto power over every one of these bills. And some of these bills may pass with Democrats alone and some of them may not. So but but it may come down to this more um, I want to say it, uh, more generalized, more umbrella feel for why you have to do something so that, you know, the people's business just can't be blocked outright by Republicans. That's right. And uh, remember that Senator Manchin comes from West Virginia and Robert Byrd was a, a powerful expert on Senate function. But I remember in 1977, the year after I came here as an intern, Robert Byrd stood up and said, if you keep abusing the filibuster on the motion to proceed, we're going to eliminate it. And uh, so, I mean, Byrd wanted this place to function. And it was only after those, those years that the use, the routine use of the filibuster expanded to like every amendment, every final passage, every motion to proceed to give you a sense of this. In the 1960s, when Lyndon Johnson was uh, leader of the Senate, majority leader, over a six-year period, he had to file one time to close debate. Otherwise, it was just 100 senators saying, okay, yeah, let's close debate. Let's go ahead and take a final vote. During the time that Harry Reid was majority leader for six years, he had to file 400 times to close debate. And each one of those filings represents a week of wasted time because it was designed, the cloture motion, to use on very rare occasion. There were decades where there was one time per decade it was used. So it involves waiting two days for the vote and then having an additional 30 hours of, of debate. So a whole week is wiped out. Well, now, if you take six years times 52 weeks, what's that, 312 weeks? 312 weeks. So if you file 400 cloture motions, You've, you've wiped out all your time. That doesn't even take into account the floor time you spent, the nominations you had to process. I mean, it's complete paralysis of the Senate to consider issues. So are we working on issues of uh, antitrust? Are we working on issues of facial recognition and privacy? Are we doing all the bills related to uh, giving families a stronger foundation on healthcare and housing? Has equality of opportunity been on the floor? Have we taken on climate? The answer is no, 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 no because Mitch McConnell has abused 
uh, this tool massively. You make the argument so incredibly well and so powerful, and it just it boggles my mind that this is even remotely controversial. Like this should be basic, obvious uh, to everybody. And to be very clear, Daily Coast, we've been we've been anti filibuster. It doesn't matter who's in power, right? We've consistently been anti. I remember sitting with you, Senator, at um, I don't know, maybe it was Vegas, Netroots Nation, talking about getting rid of the filibuster. This is an issue that has long bedeviled us, and it. It is mostly used to stop progressive priorities. And, and the fact that we were still, you know, year, decades later and we're still arguing about this, still talking about this really sort of breaks my heart because, you know, the House, so many good things are happening in the House right now. And to see it all die in the Senate is is heartbreaking. But, Carrie, go ahead. Well, I was just going to buttress your point and, t- and say, you know, we just had these uh, we just had two mass shootings. You know, we're just starting to maybe emerge from the clutches of the coronavirus. And, and already we're back to to these tragic situations. And but, you know, in terms of uh, gun control and gun reforms, gun safety issues, you know, even back as 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 relatively recently as 1993 and 1994, when the assault weapons ban was passed through the Senate um, and the you know gun show background checks were passed through the Senate, those were passed by majority votes. They didn't have to come overcome a filibuster to do those. And they were actually even. Uh, extended, although it failed in the House, but in the Senate in 2004, they the the vote was by majority vote to extend both of those. Now they failed in the House, so they didn't get extended in 2004. But that just shows you that actually, you know, in the 90s, democracy was still working. <laughs> you know, it's like when I came to the Senate, uh, it wasn't long before Ted Kennedy was was ill with brain cancer. And uh, he and his team asked me to, to carry the torch on the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, ENDA. And uh, I did. Uh, and by 2013, we got it to the floor and we passed it with a bipartisan majority of two to one, 64-32. Uh, but immediately upon being asked to do this, I looked up the history. And the history was that, and I, it, it was either 96 or 98, I think, 19, I think it was introduced in 96 by Kennedy. I think the vote was in 98. And we lost by one vote, 50-49. In other words, on an issue that has significant cultural tensions involved, no one insisted that there had to be a supermajority closed debate. That was not that long ago. Uh, You know, that was 98 and I came into the Senate in 2009. So, you know, 10 years earlier on big issues, as you are pointing out, uh, the, uh, the Senate was a simple majority body. It was designed by our founders to be a simple majority body. In fact, while they were writing the Constitution, we were under the Articles of Confederation, so it's often called the Confederation Congress, 1781, 1787. And during that six years, they had to have a supermajority to act, and they were paralyzed. They could not address the issues facing our young nation. So the founders said, whatever you do, don't have a minority view. <laughs> Madison weighed in and said, this undermines the very premise of the minority making the decision rather than the majority. You can't get to the best policy in that fashion. And Hamilton said, the result will be tedious delays, contemptible compromises of the common good. Well, what do we have now? We have tedious delays, contemptible <laughs> compromises of, of the common good. Uh, so, um, so for those who say, well, I'm an institutionalist, and this was the way the founders envisioned the Senate, no. I have to say, I always pull a little bit of hair out and say, well, yeah. Not so true. we have, 
<laughs> right. So we have about five minutes, and I don't want to. I don't, don't want to miss some time talking about S one, which is this uh, sort of electoral reform piece of legislation. It's HR one in the House, and I think the fact that they're the number one numbered bill in both chambers is very symbolic to the importance of how critical this is to our democracy, particularly since I think we really dodged the bullet last year. I mean, we were very, very close to utter. Uh, catastrophe, uh, maybe terminal damage to our democracy. Of course, we got the filibuster issue, which is entwined in that. But something you said was really interesting to me is that that there may be a carve out for HR one on the filibuster rules. So, if you could just take a moment to talk about what uh, you know this for the people bill means to you, why it's important, and how we might be able to pass it, even if there's no systemic filibuster reform uh, in the cards. So the, the For the People Act takes on three forces that are corrupting our campaign and election system. And the first is gerrymandering. Most political scientists have estimated that about 15 seats to the positive for the Republicans are caused by gerrymandering. And I've t- heard the Republicans talking about we want that 15 seat advantage to be a 25 seat advantage. So on redistricting right now, because we're in the new census, we're going to be redistricting, they want to increase it by another 10-seat advantage. That's not equal representation. That's a deep corruption. So the cure is independent commissions, where you have a certain number of Ds, certain number of Rs, they select a certain number of independents, and then they have to essentially adopt a redistricting plan that that uh, they can they can agree on. Uh, so um, uh, that would be very positive. I don't say there's no perfect way to draw the boundary lines, but, but process matters. It's very hard to undo a map. This would try to upfront make sure that the map that is is created uh, is uh, is fair and honors that vision of equal representation. We know that changes can occur because we saw the Pennsylvania Supreme Court say the Pennsylvania redistricting lines are absolutely gerrymandered. Gerrymandered. Sorry, it violates our state constitution. Go back and do it again. They did, and now the representation in Congress is proportional to the, where the voters are in the state of Pennsylvania. A second piece is the dark money. This is the money unleashed by Citizens United. And the Citizens United decision essentially said, hey, corporations, which by the way, for those who want to defend the federal Supreme Court judges were abiding by a originalist view. These corporations didn't exist in anything like they exist today. You got a public articles of incorporation for a public purpose, but this massive concentration of mega billion corporations just beyond the imagined concentration. Trillion now. Trillion. A small number, a small number of directors directing those massive resources. That is the source of, of money that flows into our system and we can't see it. We can't see what comes from where. So our Republican colleagues said during McCain-Feingold, when McCain-Feingold was about limits on individual donations, he said, no, 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 individual donations are not limits, are not the way to go. Instead, disclosure, the light, the sunlight that, that sanitizes the system, if you will. And as soon as we got to the Disclose Act, their big dollar Citizens United donors wanting to hide behind this shield because it's more powerful to do an attack at if people don't know where the attack is coming from. Sure. Uh, then they, um, so the Republicans said, oh, no, 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 that would be, no, let them be anonymous. Let, let there be dark money. So getting rid of the dark money, we can't stop the flow of money, but we can shine a light on its every movement, track it and inform voters where those ads are coming from and make the people take responsibility who are the primary forces behind those ads. And then the most important is ending the voter suppression tactics. Yes. 
this is this is really tearing down these obstacles. If they say mm -hmm. you can't, and in Georgia, the Republicans say, well, we're not going to let people hand out glasses of water to people waiting in line. We're only going to let them vote on election day, and we're only have a few precincts locations, so people have to wait in line five hours. If you're in a, a, a black American community or a poor community or you're on a college campus, I mean, that sort of manipulation is is really really torn down by vote by mail by early voting by automatic voter registration uh, and we've seen this in utah that has vote by mail a red state we've seen it in oregon which championed vote by mail a blue state and people love it they love it because they want to exercise their right but they're worried there won't be parking they're worried they move the precinct location. They're worried they'll get false information about the location. They're worried they'll have to wait in line five hours. And they know they can't be manipulated in that fashion if they have the right to vote by mail. So uh, th there's a number of powerful reforms in there, including public financing of elections, not by government funds, but by money that comes from fines for corporate malfeasance. And so there's a certain beauty in that, that corporations that misbehave fund public financing uh, so that individuals can serve the people in office without having to have gone to the richest Americans to collect campaign funds. Uh, and so there's, there's, these are powerful reforms that protect that core vision of government of, by, and for the people. Yeah, it's amazing. So how do we get it passed? How does it, how does it get through that filibuster? That's that's where we get those uh, 50 <laughs> Democrats. I mean, we would love to have Republicans <laughs> join us. We'd love to have them join us, right? Uh, that would be you know, plan number one, because certainly there should be uh, 10 Republicans who believe in the vision of defending the Constitution that they have taken an oath to. You would think. Uh, we know it will be hard. We will try. We know it will be very hard. We know that Mitch McConnell is telling his members not to co-sponsor. Uh, we know that happened in the House. Uh, why is that? This, these forms of corruption generally favor the Republican Party and its power over principle. Uh, and that takes, makes me think of uh, uh, one of our former Oregon senators who, whose statement was principle over uh, politics, uh, Wayne Morse. Uh, but we don't have a lot of that going around uh, right right now. So that's, and then otherwise, we've got to get the 50 senators in the room and say, how do we do this? Do we expand reconciliation like the Republicans did for tax cuts for the rich? Uh, we do it with uh, carving out particular constitutional issues. Do we do it through a talking filibuster so it's done in the full light of day and, and Republicans have to defend voter obstruction week after week on the floor of the Senate and we win the American people over and eventually wear them down? Uh, but we will have to decide as a group. I don't know what, Senator, where we'll end up. Senator, do you have just one quick last question time for it? Okay. You introduced the Equality Act last week, and I know you've got 49 uh, sponsors on that, I think. You, we have one lone holdout. Am I right? It's uh, Democrat uh, uh, Senator Joe Manchin. Yeah? That's correct. Yes. Is he gettable? Is Collins gettable if, if we're able to get past the filibuster? Absolutely going to be immersed with Human Rights Campaign and the other civil rights group and our Republican colleagues. When I took the, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act to the floor, we did not have 60 votes. Uh, and I worked that intensely to find a pathway to get there in partnership with all the stakeholders. And we made it. And then, of course, the House wouldn't put it up for a vote. Yeah. Now the House is passing the Quality Act and the Republican Senate wouldn't put it up for a vote. Now we can. But we're going to have to go through that same intense effort. Do I do not know if we can square the circle with people starting from very different places, but we have to try. 
This is the right, fundamental rights of millions of Americans to live their life without doors being slammed in, the, in, in their face. And it is like Johnson said uh, on the Voting Rights Act in 65, giving a speech at Howard University. Uh, he said there is um, that the concept of uh, citizenship is the right to participate in every aspect of our national life as a person equal in worth and dignity to all others. Well, that's 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 exactly the vision we're fighting for. And I sure hope we can get there. Senator, thank you so much. At the at the top of the program, I actually, when I was introducing this show, I said that you and Ted Lieu, who was on earlier, were two of my top favorite elected Democrats. And both of you have absolutely confirmed my faith and how amazing you guys are. So thank you for everything that you do. Really appreciate it. Appreciate well, you. Thank you so much. And can I just say to your audience, outside pressure is essential. The message has to come to senators. No excuses. You can't complain about Mitch McConnell blocking stuff. That's not an excuse. He changed the rules for his priorities for the powerful. We have to deliver for the people. Under the vision that our founders designed for a Senate, which was that no minority should be able to exercise a veto, and certainly not over these fundamental issues that go right to the heart of citizens' rights. Thank you. Senator Merkley, thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. I don't know if I just feel good because Senator Merkley made me feel good about the potential for for filibuster reform or or, but I do feel hopeful. He was so optimistic, almost scarily optimistic. Yeah. Well, he made it seem so it's he made it seem so unreasonable, which I agree with. Yeah. That you wouldn't do something about it as a Democratic senator right now. You know, you, you would just give Republicans veto power over your entire agenda. Right. That, that just seems like mind boggling that any any senator, any Democratic senator would think that that's a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it really struck me when he when he pointed out that not a single one of the of the Democratic caucus are invested in letting Mitch McConnell dictate that. I, right. I thought that was actually a very interesting way to frame that because he was very careful not to criticize uh, Joe Manchin. And I, like I said, I, I have no interest in criticizing Joe Manchin. We need him, right? Like, what, you're not going to alienate somebody whose vote you need, right? So how do you get there? And I thought that framing was really, really interesting, the the giving Mitch McConnell a veto. The other piece that I, I had never heard before, and it's brand new to me, was the idea of just changing the rules so reconciliation means other things. Right. It, it, because right. that's what that's what Mitch McConnell did, because originally budget reconciliation needed to be deficit neutral. Now, tax cuts for I billionaires... I didn't realize that that history and like I'm kind of kicking myself because I'm like, man, you you didn't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't know. I didn't realize that Mitch McConnell sort of tweaked the rules. So, no, it no longer had to be deficit neutral because the budget, you know, tax cuts for billionaires was, (laughs) you know, it's a trillion dollar hole in the deficit. Right. Oh, God. So so the idea that then you could come in and say, okay, now budget reconciliation means voting rights. What's stopping them? And then that way, Manchin has an out because, you know, he's vested so much into opposing eliminating the filibuster. But who says he can't just quietly sort of tweak the rules to let the For the People Act, which I think is existential for our nation's democracy, uh, to let that sure. through and and to and if you do that, then why not tweak it for this other rule for the Equality I, Act for I also, for right. the Pro Act? 
I also think it's really important that uh, President Biden got on board with something related to filibuster reform, even if it's ultimately not, you know, exactly what he said. But I think that is a public, you know, moment for every Democratic senator, none of whom I think want to be on the be responsible for and. President Biden get get anything else done in his term after the American Rescue Plan because you know I didn't I stood in the way of filibuster reform. I mean, you know, I think that that is like you know just him being on record. I also want to I also want to I want to echo one thing because we have a lot of listeners and everybody wants to get involved. Everybody wants to do their part, and I want to echo something that Senator Merkley said, which is outside pressure is essential. Now, I don't. I personally, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in grassroots um, uh, efforts because I've seen them be effective as a reporter reporting on LGBTQ issues. Um, but, you know, I don't think that you have to necessarily be agitating specifically on eliminating the filibuster. If you're agitating on minimum wage because that is your mm-hmm. thing or you're ad- agitating on, you know, gun control reform because that is your thing or you're ad- agitating. Ad- advocating on behalf of of uh, voting rights because that's your thing right you, you anything you're doing to put grassroots pressure on your senator right at home if they're standing in the way is important any protest that you can show up to to register your discontent with them not being able to address that issue is is as good as the next issue so i just want everybody to to find an issue that they're passionate about to get out and agitate on behalf of that and all of uh, every issue that is now being held up by the republicans is is a is a move towards creating the space for democrats to do the right thing here yeah, it was very clear from the very beginning of this um, term that trying to argue process and trying to get the filibuster uh, eliminated at the very beginning of the term was going to be a loser. It's just nobody understands process. Voters don't get it to spend a lot of energy on something that was that was uh, very abstract. I, I don't even think most voters understand this notion of filibuster that a minority can can uh, block the majority in a Senate. I don't even think that when you get past sort of people who understand politics and maybe are political junkies, because it's such an absurdly stupid idea and concept. And so, it, but it's it's great for the minority because then they can claim that the Senate's a do-nothing chamber, right? The do-nothing Senate. Right. And, um, you know, yeah, let, let's just, and let me put an even finer point on, on the ma- minority blocking the will of the majority, right? It's not just a matter of how many senators, right? But I just saw uh, Ron Brownstein, who's a yes. CNN, you know, data journalist. I don't know exactly what he, but, you know, he, he, he knows all things percentages, basically. And he's really smart. So if you're not reading him, you should. But uh, anyway, um, and he, he, he sent out a tweet today um, that said, you know, the, that gun control in particular exposes the Senate's bias towards small rural states as much as any other issue. And he said in 2013, um, the last time the Senate considered universal background checks, which are highly, um, you know, supported by like 90 percent of the people in every poll. He said the 55 senators voting yes represented 194 million people. The 45 senators voting no represented just 118 million people. But the filibuster, of course, won the day and we don't have universal. Yeah. Yeah. That's an 80 million people majority that was just thwarted. Exactly. 80 million. That's right. 
80 million, 80 more million people believed in background checks and didn't get it because of my minority rule spiking the will of the majority. Yeah, no, it's pretty, it's, it's patently absurd and it's, it's ridiculous. And uh, I'm glad we have Merkley as an ally in the Senate fighting it. I mean, we, we all just saw that how, how eloquent he is in making the case going back to the founding fathers, right? Going back to Hamilton, because you, you see these, these Republicans, you know, Ben Sass, I think today was talking about the constitutional, you know, the founding fathers wanted this. No, they literally <laughs> did not want this. And what? And I didn't. Yeah, and, right. As I Berkeley didn't, pointed out, they were like anything but this. Yes. <laughs> specifically argued against it. So, Gary, I think that's our show for today. I'd like to thank our uh, our two guests today, Congressman Ted Lieu of California, Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. You guys, they gave us a lot of time. They gave us, you know, 20, 25 minutes each. Um, that's very, very generous for particularly how busy they are these days. I mean, um, I bet you Merkley right now is calling people, trying to get people to, to co-sponsor the Equality Act and and the other legislation that he's so focused on uh, right now. So for them to take the time off was, was incre- incredibly, incredibly generous. I'd like to thank Carrie. I appreciate you. I'm glad you're, you're my co-host. So I don't I thank you. you. Too. I don't <laughs> thank you every week, but I should. I want to thank uh, Walter Einenkel, who is our um, uh, producer for helping produce the show. And I want to thank all of you for listening. So if you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast, or if you're watching this on YouTube, follow us. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. Thank you so much for joining us. See you all next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.